Well, this morning for our sermon, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 18 to 25. Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 25. And before we get going, I I just want to announce two things. One is, um, over the next couple months, uh, you may have heard of communications about this, but just as a reminder, or if you're a guest, if you're wondering, where's Pastor Greg? He is on a study sabbatical. So he's finishing up, or he's working on a big project toward the end of his doctorate of ministry. And uh, it seemed best for him to designate these couple months, June and July, to really be able to focus on his research. So uh, he's doing that. Keep him in prayer as he's returned back to Sacramento from visiting his dad in Wisconsin. And uh, we pray it's a fruitful time of study for him. Another thing that we want to do is just honor graduates. Uh, Over the last few weeks, there have just been graduations at various levels of school. I believe our high school graduates, we've got Ethan Boyd, who just graduated from high school, and Eliana Duran. Uh, so big congrats. And, uh, and also, yeah, a couple of college students, we've got Austin Chan, and uh, a non-member who's, who's been pretty involved, who's, Lord willing, going to be baptized very soon here, Leo Jaya Chandran, I hope I pronounced the name right. But uh, they graduated from UC Davis, so praise God for, for that accomplishment, getting them through that. Annalie DeYoung is minutes away from finishing her master's degree, so keep her in prayer as she uh, crosses the finish line. But uh, let me read our text, Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 25, and pray for the Lord's blessing. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Father, we pray that you would grant us the spiritual eyes that we need to see this truth in all of its depth, in all of its weight, in all of its glory. We need to see you. We pray, God, that your spirit would work through your word, wielding it like a sword to do the work that you know needs to be done in our lives. Whether that be conviction, whether that be comfort, whether that be warning, whether that be instruction, whatever you want to do, oh, good shepherd, do that work through your word in our midst. And we pray that we would be a people soft of heart, ready to hear, ready to respond in faith and obedience. 
We pray you conform us to the likeness of Jesus and give me clarity and faithfulness in my proclamation. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I the only one here who's ever tried to assemble something or install something without first carefully consulting the instructions? Now, I usually behave, I usually do, but sometimes the object just seems so intuitive and easy that I just think, surely I can figure this out. I get lulled into thinking, I don't need to read the directions. And so you get going, you you chuck the directions, you start assembling or installing, and you run into a problem. Something just doesn't quite seem to be fitting right. And it can be easy to kind of force it, to kind of go, oh, I just got to... I just got to finesse it a little bit. I just got to work it a little bit and get it to fit in. We should be taking the signal that we're misunderstanding something. We should take the signal of a little bit of difficulty and and think maybe I should look at those instructions. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. But if you're like me, again, sometimes it can take a little bit of struggling and failing to realize how much easier things would be if we just looked at the manual. Those who don't learn by reading, learn by failing. Or do they? We're continuing our march through Isaiah's words of comfort to a people who have been promised exile for their perpetual sin against the Lord. And last week we saw a general announcement about the work of the servant Through the servant, Yahweh was going to do something new in history, a great act of redemption for his people, removing them from Babylonian exile. But even further, we saw that this act of redemption would solve something more profound, the spiritual exile that all of mankind has suffered ever since our fall into sin with Adam and Eve. Salvation, sight, justice, liberation from bondage, These are the works that the servant would do in the Lord's name. So now as we move into 42 verse 18, we're entering the first of two parallel cycles here in Isaiah. It's going to be the same theme that cycles through twice. And that will take us all the way through 44 verse 23. And that's the time that we go through Isaiah this summer. We'll be looking at these two cycles of the repeated theme. What's going on is both of these cycles will feature a movement from Israel's failure to the promised redemption. And on the way, the Lord is going to highlight his absolute transcendence and greatness over the idols. Now, we've seen these themes mentioned. Last week's text was kind of the introduction of this whole section. We've seen all these major themes already mentioned, but we're going to move into them in a more thorough way. The first cycle that we're beginning today focuses on Israel's covenant failure as a nation and the consequences they face, which is exile, and the Lord's coming deliverance from that exile in history through Cyrus and the Persians. The second cycle will widen in scope and it will focus on, again, the big problem, the greater deliverance from the deeper exile that leads to a new creation and the outpouring of the Spirit. So as we look at today's text, we're going to see a diagnosis, a diagnosis of why Israel failed the covenant. And just like when we assemble something without consulting the instructions, they too will suffer hard consequences for not heeding what's written. 
So the big point, to summarize everything we're going to see this morning, the big point of our text is this. Learn what God is teaching because spiritual dullness kills. Learn what God is teaching because spiritual dullness kills. Our text shows us, using uh, Israel's experience, two ways that we need to learn from God. The first will be from His Word, and the second will be from His woes. So that's what we'll see. The Lord teaches us through His Word and through His woes. And the two are linked together, because we're going to see first Israel... Uh, had the word of the Lord. They were supposed to learn from that, but then they failed to do so. So in consequence, God gave them woes, disasters, so that they could learn from experience. And tragically, they're proving themselves unable to learn even from that. So let's see how this works. Verses 19 to 21. First, learn from his word. And we'll look at this in three parts. Three, three parts to see how we learn from his word. The first, in verses 18 to 20, has to do with perception. Perception is verses 18 to 20. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His eyes are open, his ears are open, But he does not hear. Now, if you were here last week, or if you were here three years ago when we looked at verses 1 to 9, then the charge of blindness and deafness against the Lord's servant might sound shocking to us. The servant, isn't the servant the fixer? Isn't the servant the one in whom the Lord delights? The one whose exceptional qualities and whose powerful redemption were heralded just a few verses ago? Well, there's something complex going on here in the identity of the servant. Back in chapter 41, verse 8, the Lord clearly identified His servant as Israel. And here in our text, later in verse 24, He'll do the same thing. He'll point out the identity of the servant as Israel. And it's clear in our text that the servant is not extolled. The servant is accused and blamed. In between, though, we have the servant text of 42, 1 to 9, which is clearly pointing to someone else. Someone faithful to the Lord. Someone used by the Lord to bring about His purposes. The servant in our text is blind. But back in verse 7, we saw that that servant heals blindness, gives sight to the blind. Now, I've mentioned before that 42 verses 1 to 9 is the first of four famous texts in this part of Isaiah. They're called the servant songs. And they go through chapter 53, describing the messianic figure to come in terms of a suffering and faithful servant. And the New Testament clearly and consistently identifies this figure, this servant, as Jesus. So, what's going on with the servant switching God is subtly and gradually showing us that the faithful servant takes up the calling and the responsibilities of the failed servant and brings him to glorious completion. In a very real sense, this servant becomes the true Israel. We even see this shift happening in verse 49, just a couple of verses apart, wherein in 49... 
verse 3, he said, it says, and this is the servant talking. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So, okay, the servant is Israel. And then in verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me, the servant from the womb, to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him. Wait a minute. The Lord formed me to bring Jacob back to him. So suddenly the servant is somebody else. And this is the shift. The, ser- the, the new servant, the faithful servant, becomes the one who takes up Israel's vocation and fulfills their role that God had entrusted to them. And in just a few moments, we're going to look more into what that role is, the vocation, the calling that the Lord had given to his servant. But here we have the servant accused of being blind and deaf. The rhetorical questions in verse 19, who is blind but my servant, etc. The point is to communicate the superlative blindness. No one is a worse, no could be a worse messenger than this. This is the blindest and most deaf person that we could point to. This is someone who's been tasked with doing a task of, of being a messenger for God and how useless is a blind and deaf messenger. In verse 20, echoes Isaiah's commission. You may be familiar way back in Isaiah, verse 9 of chapter 6. When the Lord commissions Isaiah to his prophetic ministry, and there the Lord predicted to him the outcome of that ministry, and it is a bleak prediction. This is what Isaiah was supposed to say to the people. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is telling us that there are two distinct layers of knowledge. First of all, there is sense perception, what we see in verse 20. He sees many things. His ears are open. We see things and we hear things with our bodies. Israel heard God addressing them in his word. They received tons of revelation from him. At various times in their history, they even saw visible manifestations of him. But seeing the pillar in the cloud in the wilderness, or the smoke and the shaking of Mount Sinai, and hearing the word speaking his law, or hearing the prophet Isaiah, aren't enough. There is another layer of knowledge. It's what Isaiah calls in verse 20, observing or hearing is what they did not do. And to borrow the wording from the very end of our text at the end of verse 25, we could describe this kind of seeing and hearing as taking it to heart. Taking it to heart. This is not sensory reception with our eyes and ears. This is an inner spiritual perception. It's a way of describing faith. We see the same thing in the Gospels. Many people see Jesus. They see his body. They see him do miracles. They hear him teaching the authoritative words of God because he himself is the word of God. And yet so few people truly see. They see those things. They hear those things. And so few people see this is the son of God. Sin has a blinding effect on our intellect. And this can take place in any number of of ways. There are certain habits of thinking, we could call them intellectual vices, that prevent people like Israel or us today from seeing and hearing and receiving God's word as we ought to. For instance, we might be closed minded, which means we're, we're dismissive of hearing new things 
And we're dismissive of the possibility that we might consider that this new thing that God is telling us might be true. Or we might be intellectually arrogant, which means we assume that what we already believe is sound and there's no room for it to be questioned or challenged. Or we might even be what's called epistemically insouciant, which is a $5 way of saying we don't care about what the truth is, we just care about the impact. We care about securing certain outcomes. And so, like, if God's word is true, it's going to separate me from my highly prized sin, and I don't even want to crack the door open for that. And so, I don't even consider whether it's true. The point of all this to say is that sin blinds us. Sin messes with our intellect. It dulls our hearing. It makes us irresponsible thinkers. It rigs the game so that we keep on believing whatever we have to believe to keep on sinning. This is the very danger that God is addressing in Israel. They have had plenty of exposure, but to no effect. The second part here is verse 21. Purpose. So we saw perception, now purpose, verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify the law and make it glorious. In order to understand what's wrong with Israel, the Lord gives us some background. And this, he says, is how it was supposed to work. This is why the blindness and deafness of Israel has led to such a train wreck. In short, Israel was God's advertisement for his righteous law to the world. That was their calling. And God's law encompasses not only his commands and prohibitions, but all the instruction and all the teaching of his word. The vision that he lays out in verse 21 is profound. God appointed Israel as his covenant nation, so he calls them a kingdom of priests, so that they would attend to his word and listen to it and believe it and obey it and embody it and to show everyone in the world the radiant beauty of the Lord's ways. They were supposed to be his prophets, his messengers. Remember, verse 19 calls them that, delivering God's message to the nations. And they wouldn't do this by sending out missionaries. They would do this by drawing in the nations, attracting the nations by the brightness and beauty of their righteousness, their peace, the flourishing that occurred within their borders. They were supposed to be a new Garden of Eden. That's what the law was supposed to produce. The nations were supposed to look at Israel, the Lord's obedient nation, and see the undeniable force of their moral excellence and the true blessing and happiness that that consists in and say, we want in on that. And this is the exact point that Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 to 8 in the law itself. This is Moses speaking. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded them, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great and wise, I'm sorry, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? 
Israel wasn't supposed to be enthusiastic about the law out of a, a kind of small-souled legalism like we see in Jesus' opponents in the Gospels. The point of magnifying the law, magnifying the glory of the Lord's teaching, verse 21 tells us, is because he is righteous. It's for the sake of his righteousness. And his righteous rule is profoundly good for those who come under it. It's the way things should be. If everyone kept the Ten Commandments all the time, the world would be a wonderful place. It's easy for us to slip into thinking about God's teaching as burdensome limitations rather than what the law was supposed to be, an invitation. Yes, a command, an authoritative command, but an invitation to a beautiful, flourishing way of life. And that twisting, that sliding in our perception is the work of spiritual blindness. Sin hardens and distorts and twists. It hears God saying, here, have this wonderful law that magnifies my righteousness and provides you with profound blessing. And yet the heart perceives, I'm putting you under a yoke of slavery to drain the life out of you. Think of a clothing designer who, through hard work and inspiration and creativity, designs an amazing new garment. What does she need in order to sell it? Well, among other things, I don't know how this industry works. I'm assuming one thing you need is a model. So she hires a model and she arranges a photo shoot. But when she looks at the photos, she is aghast because the model totally botched it. She rumpled up the clothes. She tore them. She wore them wrong. They weren't even worn correctly. And the photos make the garment look terrible. Not because of anything wrong with the designer or the garment she made, but purely because the model failed and misrepresented them. This is the case for Israel's tragic failure of God's covenant and law. What should have been a display of beauty and wisdom and righteousness, they have distorted into a grotesque mockery because of their spiritual blindness. They didn't catch the vision. They didn't see the goodness of the Lord and what he was out to show the Lord. And they couldn't convey his glory because they couldn't see his glory. So with all this about Israel's failure of perception and God's purpose for them, that was the background of that. What's the point for us? This is the third part of learning from his word, the point. And maybe that some of us today are hearing God's word without spiritual perception with the same kind of blindness and deafness and dullness of heart that led to Israel's undoing. How do we know if this is us? Well, one thing is to take note of how God's word affects us. If you are not believing in Christ by faith today and you hear God's commands in his law, do they strike fear into your heart? Do they expose sin to you? Do we tremble at the thought of the majesty and the grandeur of God's towering righteousness? And as a result of seeing God's glory and righteousness and the depth of our sin through the law, do we see the gospel of Jesus' blood and righteousness to be a burst of refreshment, a lifeline, our only hope? How responsive to the word of God are we? As Christ's people, those who do trust him, do we see the beauty and desirability of God's ways? Does the prospect of never sinning 
give heaven some of its glory and savor to us? Do we imagine that a life devoted to keeping God's commandments would be an experience of burden or one of blessing? Friends, may we ever approach God's word with spiritual humility and softness of heart. If we hear with indifference or worse, with scoffing and despising, what sort of response are we inviting from God? Well, we're going to see. We're going to look at Israel's response and and what they experience. And this brings us to the second way that we might have to learn. So we should learn from his word. Then now, verses 22 to 25, we learn from his woes. We learn from his woes. And again, we'll take this in three parts. The first is trouble in verse 22. Trouble. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. This but that begins verse 22 thunders. In contrast, the Lord's covenant vision for Israel would have been great. Verse 21, right? Wouldn't that plan have been good? Where are they now? The scorched earth picture of conquest and defeat. And every word of verse 22 communicates helplessness. They are helpless. Now, what is the event in view? This is the Babylonian conquest and exile. Bear in mind that Isaiah is prophesying something like 140 years before the fall of Jerusalem. So from the the perspective of history, that dark day is still in the future. He's looking ahead. But in a literary sense, verse 22 comes in the midst of this broader argument in Isaiah 40 to 66, which, as I said in the past, this whole section of Isaiah is God's answer to the promise of exile. So at the end of 39, he promises exile. And really, the whole rest of the book is God's answer to what about after the exile? How should Israel think about what's beyond the exile? This whole section is predictive. So what's in view in verse 22 is here's where they'll be when the fruit of their sin catches up with them. The trouble of verse 22 is the result of Israel's blindness and deafness, which produced a rebellion against God's law and therefore covenant failure. And this sort of disaster was always on the table for Israel, way back to the very days when God gave them his covenant and law. Deuteronomy 28 features this pattern of a set of blessings that are promised for for keeping the covenant and the law and a set of curses that are promised if they'll break the law. On the verge of bringing Israel into the promised land, the Lord stops and says, wait, you need to understand what's at stake here. And so he begins with this promise of blessing conditioned on their obedience. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 2. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I, Moses, command you today, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he he goes through a wonderful series of blessings in every area of life. But after that, he drops the other shoe and spends a whole lot more text on this section. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. This is verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. And then on he goes and lists in graphic detail all the ruin that they'll face if they disobey and fail the covenant. So this is Israel's position. They were supposed to learn from his word. They were supposed to receive it with softness of heart, with spiritual vision and hearing, 
They were supposed to take it to heart and adore the glory of God and magnify his righteousness, but they would not do that. So like a disappointed parent might say to their child with a lamenting tone, you're going to have to learn the hard way. And the hard way here in this covenant is being cast into this helpless situation at the hand of powerful foreign enemies. That's a description of verse 22. Then the next uh, part here in verses 23 to 25 is a test. So we saw trouble, now a test in verses 23 to 25. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The text does not end at verse 22. The point of the disaster isn't simply to punish them and kick them out of the covenant. The point is educational. And just like verse 19 asked these rhetorical questions, who is blind but my servant, etc. So verse 23 asks these rhetorical questions of Israel. Who among you will give ear to this? In other words, do you now have ears to hear? Do you now have eyes to see? And this reference to the future for the time to come. Well, the point is that God is meaning for this to be something that they move forward, chastened, softened in heart, and able to learn based on this hard experience from what he's teaching. They shouldn't make this mistake again. They shouldn't be like a dog that returns to his vomit. Verse 24 presses the point home. It's imperative that they understand why all this is happening. When he says, was it not the Lord? Who gave Jacob up in Israel? Was it not the Lord? Again, it's a rhetorical question, and the the answer to it is yes, it was the Lord who gave them up to their enemies. To appreciate what God is saying here, we need a little bit of background. Back in chapter 40, verse 27, we hear about an accusation that Israel has made against the Lord in view of the things that they're suffering. They say, Why do you, uh, so the prophet says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, God, why are you failing us? Why can't you see what we're going through? That's the accusation. We deserve better. Why is my right being disregarded? So here the Lord sets him straight on two fronts. First of all, they think the blame goes to God. That he's sleeping on the job and overlooking their trouble and failing them because they deserve better. The second issue is that they entertain the very possibility that things could get out of hand for God. That he could overlook something. And they're wrong on both fronts. Verse 24, he says, no, no, no. I'm not sleeping. I did this. I'm sovereign over this. It was my plan. Remember that this is so much the burden of this section of Isaiah. He is the sovereign and transcendent creator. All that exists has its existence from him. All that happens has its happening from him. He does not overlook anything. He guides and shapes every event, even down to the finest scale. And even down to the deepest woes. And why did he do this? It's because, as we've seen, it's because of their blindness and covenant failure. Now, we might struggle with the notion that God is sovereign over evil and suffering. 
disastrous events in history. Now, this is a complex issue in full biblical perspective, but there is no need to qualify or apologize for this fact that God is trumpeting before us in his word today, that he is totally sovereign over good and evil, over light and dark. Nothing happens outside his decree and nothing happens outside his guiding hand of providence. Just a few chapters down the road, here's how he'll describe the way he oversees all of history, even in its ups and downs. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And along with this, it's important for us to remember the righteousness of God that we heard about in verse 21. The righteousness of God is always operative here. He never sins. He's pure light. He can never even look on sin. But he does orchestrate it. By means of decision makers who are fully responsible for their own sin. As for how to put all that together, all we can do is retreat into mystery and wonder. This fact about God may trouble us. How could God ever let evil things happen? How could he ever have a purpose for evil? And having a God of our own making, a modified God who isn't sovereign over evil, that may be a strategy we go with to cope cope with the discomfort that this raises. And this revision might leave us with a God who's more comfortable to us. But I assure you, it makes evil utterly terrifying. That evil is too big for God. We may gain a Pyrrhic victory that ends up burning up far more than it gains us. We may have a God who isn't sovereign over evil, but then we have evil being sovereign. Now what we really have in reality, the God who is, is a God who engineers this bleak conquest and also then a God who can undo it with absolute ease. And that is the main point of this whole section of Isaiah. This whole teaching about, again, the cycle of failure and redemption. The major note here is redemption. We're on the bad news now, but the good news will be, again, just what Isaiah said from the Lord at the very beginning of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. That's the glorious truth of these later chapters of Isaiah is, yes, the conquest is really dark and exile is really bad, but redemption is so much greater. So this is how their experience was supposed to work. It was supposed to teach them what the word didn't teach them. But sadly, the lesson of exile doesn't seem to do the trick either. So verse 25 leaves us there. This deep sense of incompletion. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God opens the floodgates of heaven and pours out a torrent of terrifying, burning fury against them in the, by by means of warfare, by means of conquest. And they feel the pinch. They feel the burn. They're surrounded without escape and we're left with this haunting, tragic verdict. But he, Israel, did not take it to heart. Now the instruction manual was ignored. And the disastrous attempt at blind installation still does not convince them of the wrongheadedness of their approach. Again, to see the spiritual reality of God's difficult providences requires something beyond natural perception. 
Isn't it heartbreaking if we ever watch someone persisting in a pattern of behavior that is obviously wrecking his life and bringing great loss after great loss and he just keeps doubling down and pressing ahead in the same direction? Addictions often work this way. Substance addictions or gambling, things like that. Everyone who's near the person can see it happening and they want to grab the person. Everyone who loves the person wants to say, don't you get it? Don't you see what this is doing to you? And you just keep forging ahead. When will you understand? This is exactly God's tragic appeal today to this spiritually blind servant. So, what are we to take away from all this? This is the third part of this learning from woes is the takeaway. We had trouble, test, and now takeaway. We are not under the old covenant with Israel with its pattern of blessings and curses promised in consequence of how we treat God's law. However, as Christ's people, we still may face the Lord's redemptive tribulations, which he intends to correct us. So the question before us this morning is, are we humble enough to learn from difficult and painful providences? Now, I should hasten to clarify that often our suffering is not a result of our sin. The Bible is very honest about the seeming randomness and unfairness of our experience in this fallen world. The book of Job is a great example of this, but even better, the prime example is Jesus' persecution and death. However, the Bible is just as clear that sometimes, as with Israel here, sometimes God does ordain tragedy and pain and hardship because he is out to grab our attention over some pattern of sin in our lives. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in the New Covenant that some of them who the context makes clear were true believers in Christ were being struck with illness and even struck dead because of a continual pattern of hardened sin. They've been abusing the Lord's Supper by taking this family meal while division and selfishness reign in their midst. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This morning, the Lord is challenging us to assess the way that our response to disaster reveals our hearts. If we respond to disaster by blaming God, where is God and where is my right that I deserve from God? We're showing ourselves to be hard-hearted. We're showing ourselves to be potentially spiritually blind. But if we allow the trouble that God ordains in our lives to shine a spotlight on our sin and show us afresh maybe what we didn't see before, this is a soft-hearted response. Now, when we face personal disaster, we probably would tend toward one of two extreme reactions. Either we might respond with crippling self-condemnation, yet more proof that God is punishing me for my sin, yet more proof that he disapproves of me. Or on the, other, on the other side, hardened self-justification. How could God do this to me? I'm so faithful and righteous. I don't deserve this. We should not assume that every hard providence is a consequence of our sin. But neither should we be closed off to the possibility. Remember the dangers of intellectual arrogance and closed-mindedness, thinking we know. A healthy response is to humbly and with open hands ask ourselves, ask the Lord, whether this might be the case. The point is not legalistic self-condemnation. It's constructive self-inspection. Self, 
What's going on? Are there any patterns of hardened sin that I've been nurturing and refusing to give over to the Lord in repentance? And then we ask God, Lord, search my heart and show me like the psalmist in Psalm 139. Are you getting my attention about a pattern of hardened sin in my life? And in faith, we trust that he will show us whatever he may need to show us and we move on, we carry on. We don't turn into the Spanish Inquisition on ourselves. We humbly ask and consider whether some of the blame may lie with us. And we leave ourselves open to the Lord's discipline that we would repent. But for all of us who are in Christ by faith, the closing words of verse 25, as bleak as they are here for Israel, they set up a wonderful contrast that illustrates just how blessed we are when it says he did not take it to heart. That is the heart of the problem. They didn't take it to heart. Would not, could not, because of the spiritual blindness and the dullness of heart. That is the problem that for us, God has decisively solved. The old covenant said, here's the law. Here's the promise of blessing and the promise of uh, uh, cursing. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. So you have what you need. Go for it. And this is the result. But the new covenant in Christ is new in precisely this way. It makes provision for that fatal flaw of a hardened, uncircumcised heart. That is the newness of the new covenant in Christ. Instead of being stuck in a state where we hear God's word and see God's providences, but we can't take it to heart. In the new covenant, the gift is a, excuse the weird grammar, it's a pre-taking it to heart. It's already there. We have a heart that responds to God. We who trust in Jesus have two great advantages over the old covenant. The first is there is no condemnation in Christ as Romans 8.1 declares. And this, in the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, this is how it says that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31.34 No condemnation left for those in Christ. And the cost, or the second advantage, the second advantage of the new covenant is what I mentioned earlier, a new heart, where he said just a verse before that in Jeremiah 31.33 I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The law is already there. This is a profound blessing. I hope we see in, in light of comparison with Israel's plight, which would have been our plight if we were put in the same circumstances. And the cost of all this blessing for us is the sacrificial death of Christ, who took on himself the covenant curse for us. He drained it down to the dregs on himself. As Galatians 3 tells us, he became a curse for us. He was hanged on a tree so that all that's left for us from God is kindness and grace. And this means, Christian, that the darkest providences you will ever have to endure, even if they are a direct straight line consequence of your sin, it's never condemnation from God. It's never God getting back at you. It is redemptive discipline. It's given at the hand of a good father who is preparing you for eternal glory and joy. What a difference that makes. Even when he's disciplining us for our sin, he is with us, he is for us, he is never against us. 
And part of what it means that God has given us a new heart is that we can now see and hear as we ought to. If we're in Christ, we can be soft to the Word of God. We can see God by faith and with an ever-increasing clarity as our heart undergoes ever-increasing purity. By His grace, we are not doomed to the endless cycle of deadly spiritual dullness. This is the refreshment of the new covenant where God remembers our sins no more and we have the gift of a new softened heart. If you haven't yet believed in Jesus, God's warning for you from this text is dire. You are spiritually blind right now. You are unable to see his glory. And because of that blindness, you're going to keep following the course of rebellion and condemnation that we all inherited at birth from our father, Adam. And because you persist in disobedience, you will continue suffering the consequences. And sadly, you will never learn. You'll just keep on sinning and keep on suffering. And the cycle will only continue and deepen and harden throughout endless ages. That's your future outside of Christ. But maybe today, God is piercing through that hardened shell of a heart. Maybe he's cracking your blind eyes open to allow in a glimmer of light. And maybe the thought of offending and resisting God makes your heart race a little bit with fear. That is a good thing. Because you truly are, outside of Christ, in the gravest danger. And maybe the descriptions of the beauty of the new covenant leave you with some faint sense of longing. You sense deep down that you want to know God this way. You need to know God this way. You need your sins forgiven. You need a new heart. That is very good. Today, now, we urge you, come to Jesus and have life indeed in His new covenant. Let's pray. Father, we we confess that you're righteous and we confess that your law is holy and righteous and good. And we confess that all it does in our natural sinfulness is expose how not good we are. And we confess that we deserve condemnation and we confess that we deserve wrath and we cling to Christ once again and we thank you for all the provision you've made in him for forgiveness, for freedom from any sense of condemnation and for a new heart that responds to your word with softness and love. God, all of our salvation, all of our hope is of your grace. We pray that each one who knows Christ would ever cling to him and would maintain with vigilance, a soft heart before you. That we would be humble about our trials and not fall into condemnation, but that we would be humble about what you might be teaching us through our trials. That we would long for holiness in us the way you long for holiness in us. And we pray that everyone in this room who may not know Christ would rightly sense the weightiness of their condemnation before you and would rightly sense the glory of Christ and his offer in the new covenant. We pray that you would open blind eyes and that you would soften hardened hearts. Do your miraculous work of giving new life and granting faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.